everyone. Hi, hello. Welcome to another exciting episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I am sitting here with one of my favorite people, Mr. Greg Proops. Hello, Allison How's Rosen. How's it going? I'm, it's going very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Hello, Allison Rosen people. Oh, and they say hello back to you. Hi. I don't know that they've been addressed as Allison Rosen people. I think that that's a good name for that. Rosettes? Um, I've heard Rosenettes. Rosenettes, I've that's heard nice. Rosen Army. Uh-huh. Um, there's a podcast dedicated to this podcast. Really? Which, by the way, is making me insufferable. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> called the JMO Patrol, because we do just mirror everyone, yeah. that segment. So maybe that might be a new name they take JMO on. JMO Patrol. But you guys, I recommend the very straightforward Allison Rosen people. Oh. Take it on. I, make it your own. Yeah. Wear that mantle. So, Greg Proops, this is your fourth time yes on the it show? is i think we set a record Allison. i do think this is a record i'm trying to think if there's anyone else who's been on that many times if they have they don't register on my memory <laughs> and let's think about what that means so you are here to catch up with me and the allison rosen people and engineer jeff producer jeff i don't why why am i calling you engineer it's like i gave you a, yeah, a I, demotion or something what did i do you had something in your tire i did not approve <laughs> That was not pre-approved, I know. If you were um, a real engineer, you would have taken that out of your tire and fixed it yourself. But then I would have been really late instead of just jumping in my other car and coming here. <laughs> I love that you have a backup car. Oh, yeah, That's you so got it. so smart. Everyone should have two cars and drive them both at the same time. That's a, 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 quite a feat, if you can ima- manage it. But doesn't it make parking kind of a nightmare? Or do you have a garage for your... I have one parking space, and then uh, street parking is not a problem in my neighborhood. Bel- you can just... <laughs> Bel Air. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello. Uh, anyway, you have a book coming out. I do. On May 5th, and it is called The Smartest Book in the World. And I just need to take a moment to tell you how much I am enjoying it. Reading your First of all, we should talk about just the format of the book because it's, um, it's a real compendium of all sorts of stuff. It's kind of unusual in, in the structure, but just reading it reminded me of what my values are. And oh. it was it was so refreshing to uh, read something and be like, I feel like I'm getting more in touch with who I am and what I believe in just from reading you present what you believe in. Well, that's very kind of you. Yeah, we wanted to do a compendium or what I think. What do we call it? A, a lexicon. A calamorous collodion. A concise curriculum. A concise curriculum. Uh, when we first uh, when I first pitched it to them, it was based on the podcast, of course, the smartest men in the world. So it was all the stuff that we talked about in the podcast, which is. Uh, baseball and feminism, history, music, art, uh, literature, how to steal art, uh, <laughs> and drugs and drinking. And uh, uh, I decided immediately that it wasn't going to be uh, a memoir or me talking about myself or that I did this, then I did that, then I did this, then I did that. Because I always felt like as entertaining as those books can be, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And then, of course, I ran into what am I going to write? And so I started to look at the podcasts and like, oh, can I put transcriptions of podcasts in in book form? And then I thought, well, that'll just be a bunch of transcriptions of podcasts. <laughs> and they don't read that well because it's like, uh, mm, eh, and then I like, and then they're swearing, and then we backtrack. So mm-hmm. I thought, well, we'll just do it this way. What freaked me out when it finally came out was there was no table of contents, which I had failed to notice during the enormous editing process. Um, so when people ask me to find things, I'm like, I don't know what page it's on. But um, mm-hmm. you have an index, though. Is there an index? There, oh, oh do you, in the back. did you not know? Yeah, yeah, in the back. Yeah. Oh, wow. and it was, it was expensively fact checked too. By the way, I was going to say, pay for a fact checker. Who made the index? If not you? Uh, no, they did that. They, they that was the that. one thing they did. They, uh, they well, they, they did lots of things, but uh, 
uh, a couple of the ideas were uh, mine, and uh, my editor, Matthew Benjamin, gave me a couple of ideas for the book. My wife, of course, Jennifer Kanega, helped me uh, put it together, and she did all the artwork in it. I love that. Yeah, so it's a family affair, like the boutique that we are. Uh, you can go to Whole Foods, or you can come to my corner shop, <laughs> where I will personally bag the tangerines for you. It's a real artisanal book. Well, thank locally you. sourced. It is locally sourced. And they made you put in commas that you did not want? Um, the Oxford comma appears throughout the book. I decry the Oxford comma early mm-hmm. on in the book. Uh, and then they, they made me, uh, I think they made me make mention of it. Uh, I was given an afterword to write, which I thought I was done writing the book. And then they called me and went, oh, by the way, uh, we need five more pages. And I'm like, why? And they went, the pagination didn't work out. And I'm like, well, fix that. Make it fit different. Yeah. You're, you're a book uh, firm, Simon & Schuster. Uh, finally, a note on the Oxford comma. This is at the back of the book. It's employed throughout this book. This was specifically against my wishes. I was sentenced by the publishers to sit captive in a darkened room with ghastly, uncomfortable furnishings, horrible music by Sting, and dismal New York weed, while they peppered <laughs> my masterpiece with this abomination of punctuation. The willful disregard for my feelings on this matter is an illustrative example of how the sincere common person is being trod upon by the vast, unsympathetic corporate powers. <laughs> it's gets Baroque. This explanation is the one that I prefer to believe, rather than the fact that I never peruse my copy of The Elements of Style by Strunk and White. I instead use it to balance a wonky table leg. Uh, what is that? Uh, there, I think, I, the Oxford Common I have called a truce. The exclamation point had better watch out if I see its overenthusiastic lame ass in a dark alley. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about the exclamation point many because times. Because I abuse, I used to be like you. I used to not use and certainly not abuse the exclamation point. But once you start, then you need to add more. Yeah. And now I feel like my emails look so unfriendly if they don't have exclamation points in them. So today when I emailed you, I just stripped all the exclamation points out and then put a shitload after the period. Oh, yeah. Because I had to get them in. But see, that's kind of like um, I was listening to our an episode that we had done. It was um, over a year ago. And you were talking about when someone tells you to do something like you, you even have a problem with stop signs. Right. I, I'm not, I don't take orders well and I don't work under any kind of constraints. That's kind of how I am. So yeah. I think that's why I'm like, here's the exclamation point. Yeah. Not in a hostile <laughs> way towards you, but I'm, well, it's a joke with us because now yeah. I'll send you an email and I'll put 50 exclamation points before <laughs> hello. I just assume where they don't real go. friendly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I just think it's funny now. I used one the other day, uh, actually. What, I shouldn't admit that, but I did. What, what were you writing? I can't remember, but it needed overemphasis. Now, was this your, was it like your way of kind of breaking it down for someone that you were afraid wouldn't get what you were saying? Because I had, for a long time, I was very anti-emoticon. Even those I'm more okay with now. But I know that if I was ever in a situation where I was having some kind of like instant message chat with tech support, I was like, I just have to put a smiley face in here. Yeah. I just have to. Right. Or a little bunny or something. Yeah. I like the little ones that are animals and stuff. I send those to my wife. You know. I think they're cute. Panda bears. Whatnot. I've come around. Yeah, yeah, really, I used yeah. to be very not okay no, with all too. that. I use them too. But the exclamation point, I'm always just, I feel like it's the last refuge of poor writing. And then I'll read a book about history or, or, or baseball or something. And it'll be like, oh, Caesar took his legions to France with an exclamation <laughs> point. You're like, so is the last word of the sentence, uh, sentence supposed to be shouted? I don't understand. I'm reading a book about this. You already have my attention. The book is in my hands. Um, I understand that there's a bunch of history about to happen. Why are you exclaiming it? 
right anymore uh well you made a really good point which is do whatever you're trying to do do it in the sentence don't do it at the end that's what i said don't backload don't don't backload on me don't don't pretend you had this big enthusiastic constructed sentence and then put two exclamation points at the end and then what you're nine why don't you put a flower over the vowels in your name (laughs) that's next (laughs) tiny emoticons that hover above the eyes Um, I also loved how much poetry is in the book. Why, thank you. Because I was an English major. I love poetry. I feel like I've, uh, my connection to it is, is, uh, maybe poetry and I, we're not estranged, but I don't spend a lot of time reading it anymore. Yeah. But I was reminded of how much I love it and how big a part of my life it was in reading your book. That's so kind of you. That was the part of the book I was the most worried about. Tell besides me. baseball because i don't think i think poetry is a bitter pill for a lot of people and and uh you know you know how people are Allison. they say things like i don't like to read i <laughs> yeah. just don't like it it makes me uncomfortable or you know i was dyslexic so therefore it's always been punishment to me and i always think well get over it uh but po- i think poetry for a lot of people was stuff that got forced on them in grade school and they didn't dig it and no one tried to give them any understanding of why it's good or why you should be care or anything like that or how to understand it because it yes. really is its own language yeah. and that's the thing i was i as i was reading one of the poems in the book i was thinking i have the skills to be able to understand what is con- being conveyed mm-hmm. here but i think that a lot of people who are freaked out by poetry don't because they just were never taught it they're, no they're given no background in it and uh by the way the poetry in the book is not mine there's no original poetry i did not make anyone suffer with my bad poetry it's <laughs> it's shakespeare and uh blake and uh emily dickinson and uh i'm trying to remember who else they wouldn't we couldn't clear a couple of them everything had to be in public domain uh so it's edgar Allan poe uh and uh, Carl Sandburg. Did Sappho in there? Yeah, Sappho's in there. Thank you for reminding me. Sappho, the the ancient Greek poetess who uh, invented being a lesbian, except her poems are completely hetero. Um, but the uh, I, that was a, a decision we made early on because I read poetry in the and the show all the time. But I tend to read poetry by um, Gwendolyn Brooks, and uh, who's a, an ace black poet of the. Um, who's passed away since and uh, Gil Scott Heron who is a revolutionary poet and uh, as well as a rapper and a singer and a musical artist and a teacher and an educator and uh, but those I couldn't clear all those mm-hmm. and th- there's a money factor involved in publishing where they're like I had these Lorca poems and I'd written this whole piece on Lorca because I think Lorca is amazing and they were like no you can't use it because it costs $52 or whatever, you know? And I'm like, okay, fine. Simon and Schuster went broke. and uh... <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering about that. At first I thought, how did you publish all this? And then I assumed that some of it must be in the it's public all, domain. All the ones, yeah. That's why there's uh, the William Blake poem, uh, you know, Every Day and Every Night, Summer Born to Sweet Delight, Summer Born to Sweet Delight, and Summer Born in the Night and all that. And uh, that poem is very long. And even my editor was like, you got to write a big intro because to tell everybody how long this is, I'm like, you told me to put the fucking poem in, man. <laughs> so I did write a long intro. In it. And then we had to do the books on tape or whatever, the audio book. And I had to read the fucker. And the engineer went like, just read it. Like, don't try to get all fancy with the intonation, you know, because <laughs> all of a sudden I'm like, every day and every night, you know. <laughs> But the, the, the fun one to read was The Raven because The Raven's five minutes long when you read it out loud. Mm-hmm. And um, Poe read it. Uh, I think a lot of people in the 19th century 
well, obviously people read it, but it, it was a hit for him. He didn't have a lot of hits in his lifetime, like Van Gogh. And uh, one of the things that was really popular that Edgar Allan Poe would do was go to universities and recite the Raven out loud. And he had a giant head, and he was very small indeed, and he wore black, and he adopted a theatrical manner, right? Like when he walked around in public, he wore a cape and a fucking hat and a, a scarf, and, and I'm sure he spoke in a declamatory early 19th century. So it would be, uh, you know, one, once I pondered weak and witty, once upon a midnight really, and all that. And like, I think he'd really lay down the law on uh, when they got like to the, the Nevermore. The mystery of his day, yeah, right. Mystery uh, that you know. His nickname was the Raven. He was so popular from the poem that they called him the Raven. He was also a terribly poisonous critic, and he wrote for a literary paper. And other, he excoriated Cooper, right? Like, and Cooper didn't even know who he was really. Cooper took it in hand and like went. Edgar, I get it, you know, like, he's like, Cooper's a piece of shit, you know, and like, I hate Nutty Bumbo, and blah, 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 you know, like, on and on and on, and these, the 1840s is like, what, the, one of two or three greatest moments in American literary history, right, we're mm. talking about, not only in America, but England, too, like, the 1840s are considered the golden fucking age, it's Melville, and it's the Brontes, and it's, uh, uh, you know, and Poe. <laughs> uh, he also wrote this indecipherable science fiction book called Eureka that's almost all scientific terms. But, I mean, the genius of him, I put the poem in, but I think the short stories are where it's at. Mm-hmm. He's a very good poet, but it is in I really Pentameter like and, Annabelle Lee. That was my mother's favorite poem. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, did you I get along that, with her? My mother? Mm-hmm. I did. Uh, did. She passed away a couple years ago, and I was thinking about her the other day, because I used to call her every Sunday uh, when I'd come back from gigs, like from LAX. I had about an f- hour ride or whatever, so I'd ring her, and, and that's when we would talk on Sunday. Uh, and she'd be like, where'd you come home from, Shig? And I'd go, Boston or whatever, you know. My mother was straight up country from Mississippi, oldest of uh, nine, eight, nine. Wow. Yeah, two of them died, you know, like that kind of sharecropper family. I think they had kids like Jeff has cars, spares. Right, right? A backup kid. <laughs> One of them was what they called in the old days a blue baby. What does that now mean? Now we would say like, you know, birth defects. Oh, later. right. But in the 20s, when he was born, he was a blue baby and he just didn't live. And she had another brother named Howard, one of my uncles, who was deaf and drowned on their farm in Mississippi. It drowned in what? A, a river near Ugh. the near the property. Yeah. Oh no, her life is like. Your mother sounds like she was from another time, but like quite literally. Was straight she up. She she drove older? in a truck to. Oh yeah, she was forty when she had me. Wow. Uh, and she died at ninety four. Um. So I knew her, and uh, <laughs> but she drove in a truck with the whole family loaded up. There's pictures of them, you know, like not with me. This is way before me. Mm-hmm. This is my brother, you know, and my. Who was my brother's, you know, born in like World War II. And, you know, golly, yeah, my mother's. Were was you a surprise really old. baby? My mother got married again to my father, and then I guess they had me. And my dad says uh, I wasn't surprised, but uh, he also said, um, Oh, the day you were born, man, I had uh, $500 on the White Sox, you know, and they, <laughs> they beat the Dodgers that night. It was the 1959 World Series. So that's why it was a good day? <laughs> my dad liked to gamble. Yeah. Like other people, like to breathe air. <laughs> was your dad a compulsive gambler your whole life? Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, big time. Do you gamble at all? I yeah, yeah. You know, I'll I'll play poker. Uh, what's the quarter poker machine? That kind of stuff. Or po- poker with my friends. But for me, the, playing poker with your friends is about drinking and getting high and hanging around. Right. I have no interest in winning or losing, so my play is a little heedless. 
So no one knows how good I am, really. Every once in a while, I'll beat everyone's ass. And they're all like, how did you do that? I'm like, because I just bet on everything. I don't care. But with a real gambler, they don't. Uh, winning doesn't mean anything to them at all. That's not the point of it. What is the point of it? Being in play, playing all the time. Action, action. They call it action. Gaming, gaming, game, 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 game. They just want. Um, they want to have enough money to play again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's more important than anything else. So, say they win, that's a good day. Now I got money to play again tomorrow. Say I lose, that's a bad day. Allison, um, that gold ring your grandmother gave you, I'm going to need that. <laughs> that's what the gamblers are like. Did your dad do that with you? Oh, hell yeah. We had a different car. He'd come, he'd go away and come back with a different car, a lesser car, because mm-hmm. he'd sold the car to go gamble. And so there was lots of that right. type did, of weird shit. Did he and your mom stay together? Way longer than I wanted them to. They <laughs> ended up dying. To, well, she, he died quite some time ago, but uh, uh, they stayed together till the bitter end. They tried to separate a couple times, and I begged them to separate when I was a teenager, but they just wouldn't do it. A lot of couples, I find... Contrary to what people think about the nature of family, um, the, the mother and the father tend to be the closest unit, and that excludes the kids in a lot of ways. You know, like They don't treat the children the way they would even treat each other. They might abuse each other horribly, but like, there's a bond between them. Like, I don't think anyone was closer than my mother and dad. You mm-hmm. know? like, clearly, they came first. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I'm not saying they abuse me or anything. I'm just saying that, you know... Yeah, I, I do... Th- I guess the older I get, the more... I realize that that it's probably rare that you find a couple and one of them's a total asshole and the other one's wonderful. Right. Like usually, although I'm realizing as I say this, I'm not talking about your parents. I don't know about your parents. But usually... I think my dad might qualify. Huh? One of them's like publicly <laughs> monstrous. However, it's not... I don't know. I just think there's something connecting the two. Like usually they're kind of similar. Yeah. It's just a matter of who expresses it. Yeah. Or, t- or sometimes they say opposites attract, which I've never understood. Right. Because uh, uh, if, if my wife and I didn't agree on everything politically, I, I don't know that I could sit there. Yeah. I don't think opposites attract. Actually. Right. Like they Maybe go, they attract, but they don't stay together. Right. He's a neo fascist and she's, a, you know, pot smoking, <laughs> right. flower planting liberal. It's, isn't it cute that they live together? And like, yeah. no, it's not that cute. It's Marley Matlin and James Carvel. But right, the, but they're both political. So. What I was going to say, but they're both like showbiz politics, so that doesn't surprise me as much as when other couples uh, are said to be opposites attract. Right. Uh, I don't know how we got on the family thing, but there you are. Uh, the, my, I only have one. Uh, I don't have any regrets, but I would have liked to have shown my mother this book. I think my mother would have liked it. <laughs> what was she like? <laughs> it was a bit late. I mean, uh, we super from country. What she like, uh, like but... she cooked her. She grew her own food, and she could, uh, you know, like whatever land you have here in Hollywood, she would. It would be full of tomatoes and peppers, and you know what I mean. Like there was no space that ever got to be anything that didn't have plants in it. And she was awesome at, uh, and she made down home food, you know, because she's from Casilla, Mississippi. So I grew up on black eyed peas and. Fried chicken, lima beans, uh, collards, whatnot. Hominy, not hominy grits. Hominy, which are the puffy corn kernels that are just bloated. I think I would. I don't know if I've ever had hominy, but I think I'd be into it. You you put butter and, and salt on. it. I would be. And it, yeah, <laughs> and it, it goes down pretty smooth. Mm-hmm. And then for my dad, she'd make like matzo ball soup and you know all that jazz. How did she and your dad meet? Uh, they were. She was a uh, working at the Pink Pony in Scottsdale, Arizona, and he was tending bar, and she was waiting table. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's where they met, yeah. And then they went to Vegas and got married, and I was born exactly nine months to the day after they got married. <laughs> and as a teenager, <laughs> as a teenager, you wanted them to split up 
because they were fighting all the time, or could you? Oh tell yeah, that- no, no. It was just con- we lived in we lived in a very small apartment together, the three of us, and uh, uh, yeah, they were. It was just constant mayhem. He, he couldn't be controlled, you know. So was he, just, he an alcoholic as well? No, just the gambling. That was the strange part. He really didn't drink to speak of it at all, and he was a bartender, which is a very unusual because most bartenders, like most comics and jazz musicians, are drug addicts and alcoholics. <laughs> right. Uh, um, but uh, no, he just uh, he, no, no horses, horses, not even cards. Like, we'd go to a casino every once in a while, but I could see he was bored. Mm-hmm. He wanted to watch horses race around a track and bet on them. Every minute that he could do that was the overriding concern of his life. And I know that he was, we've talked about it before, kind of rageful. He was giant and had a lot of anger issues. He, was, he looked like Dangerfield, he, he, and uh, a blue-eyed Jew, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, 6'3", wow. 250, you know bellicose mm-hmm. and he was loud he also spoke like four languages and was a math wizard like he had all these other things he could do he just didn't want to do them um we'd watch tv and uh and like we'd watch a movie with germans you know because we uh, war movies were very big all like all dads uh zulu and Patton were quite popular around the house <laughs> Uh, and I'd say, what did the Germans say? And he'd translate. Because not only did they speak German at home, they spoke Yiddish at home. Uh-huh. Right? Oh, the, wow. outside of the family, the Adler side and the other side. like they. Where did he grow up? Well, I grew up in San Carlos, California. But he was from Brooklyn. Uh-huh. He was from Bay Park Way. So he said the FBI came to their house to interview him in World War II when he joined the Coast Guard because they fucking spoke German. Right. And they were basically krauts. And <laughs> so they came and were like, all right, you're American enough. <laughs> but everybody, if you... Not that I speak Yiddish, but Yiddish is what, 80%? German. Yeah, 75, 80%. And then a lot of Slav, Russian, Russian. Yeah, I think if you speak German, you can understand Yiddish, right? Well, all the kaput, Mm -hmm. fritz, you know. (laughs) Those are all Yiddish type things. And I think the rest of it's kind of Russian and Slav, you know. That shtetl stuff. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Although we weren't shtetls. No. No. Did your (laughs) parents see your comedy? They did a couple times. Uh, when I was in high school, they came once or twice. And then my mother came uh, years later. I was playing in Cobbs in San Francisco. And she came out with my sister, Marion, and they flew out and uh, watched me for the weekend. And they enjoyed it. But that was it. They, they were content to stay where they were and have me send them tapes and then like tell everybody at the Kroger's that I was on TV or whatever. <laughs> uh, that's how they lived their life. They, di- they didn't. Their world got very small, and it's not something that I aspire to, but it happens to lots and lots of people. They just ended up staying where they were, and I'd go, like, come out and see me, and they'd like, mm-mm. And I played in Eng- I lived in England. They never came to see me in England. Did I they not, like, for five years. to like, travel, or were they no, fearful? No, not really. Or? They just, yeah. They, staunch. I don't know how to put it, man. I mean, you know, uh, you could uh, do a dime store psychoanalysis and say that this is all a... a, a, a huge effort to get approval from people that I didn't get it from but I didn't really want their approval after a certain point and I didn't I didn't care uh, the people that freak me out are the ones that are my age and are still like oh my god my mom and dad did this and my mom and dad did that you're like hey honey we're all old now yeah, at a certain point you gotta let that shit go yeah uh, but uh, no they weren't they were they were fans I think of my comedy but they couldn't be bothered to come see me do it mm-hmm. for some reason when did you get to the point where you stopped caring? About them or about their approval or whatever? About their approval, yeah. Because that's something – I don't, I don't think it's the approval I'm seeking, but it is something that dawns on me like, no, I'm, I'm truly an adult now. I need to yeah. – uh, I need – it's – I still 
in in relation to them at times still think of myself as a kid and i'm not no no you're grown yeah you're you are yet a woman thank you're, you you're not you're not waiting to be uh i don't know i think when i started to go out with jennifer my wife uh i went to visit them one christmas and I brought them a bunch of money and all these presents and shit. And I remember leaving Jennifer's apartment. We weren't married. We'd just been going out for a year or two. And uh, thinking, I don't want to leave. Why am I doing this? And it was like Christmas Eve, too, or Christmas Day. It was like one of those. And I was in my 20s, you know. And Jennifer was like, you don't have to go. And I was like, oh, I do. <laughs> and then I realized when I got there that I didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was sort of the, that was the moment where I was like, because my dad was, you know, pretty free with putting the touch on, like, he would call and go, like, do you have a couple grand? You know what I mean? Like, he was that kind of dude. So at a certain point, I shut him down, right? And mm-hmm. then I'd, I'd go, like, oh, I'll pay this bill or that bill or whatever, but no more, Tiger, because I know what you're doing with it, and I, I, don't, I don't need it, you know? And, I mean, he wasn't afraid to put the touch on me when I was a kid, you know? <laughs> you have to understand how gambler's minds work. They don't think, well, you're but a child. They think, I know you got 150. <laughs> <laughs> and I need that 150 because I got a exacta in the seventh race that I got a back wheel because uh-huh. I got a horse that cannot fucking fail. And uh, so there was that element of, uh, and you know, yeah, it's probably messed me up. I've, I did, I've gone to therapy here and there, but nothing really extensive. And if you probably thought, if I thought about it too much, the lack of will to succeed, the lack of focus, all the things I perceive in myself that I don't probably think the world thinks of I was going to say, all. I'm surprised to hear that. You know what I mean? Yeah. My own insecurities that I drag around or probably go back to that. But they tell you, what do they say? Your personality is formed by five or six. You mm-hmm. know? So um, I never had a problem with women or my mother or anything like that. So that I'm grateful for. I don't have a mommy fixation. I meet so many guys who hate like they break up with their wife and then she's a fucking bitch forever. And it's like, you married her and had children with her. What do you mean she's a fucking bitch? Like, you're a fucking bitch for being this way. Like, can't you, you know, get, uh, what's that about? And um, my father was a terrible misogynist. Like, he really disliked women. And I never understood why. Uh, like, what kind of, thing, kind of things did you see or what did he say? Well, I can't. <laughs> some of them were so awful. I, well, the nicest thing was women were tomatoes, right? Because he's from New York in the, in the, before the war. So, and World War II, I'm talking about. So that's a compliment? No. It was like, women were broads and tomatoes. Uh, he didn't really say bitch, but every once in a while a C-bomb got thrown around. Mm-hmm. Um, twats, I believe. Um, so, yeah, he didn't, uh, he didn't have a high opinion of women, and I never really understood. And at the same time, uh, he was friends with gay guys, black guys. He was like, he really was this bizarre dichotomy of, I know he voted Republican, but he wasn't particularly rednecky. Mm-hmm. And then when they moved to the South, he thought the rednecks were fucking horrible, ignorant hillbillies, which he told them constantly. And he was this one giant Jew in the middle of <laughs> the country, you know, telling them they were stupid all the time. Right. And that didn't go over that well. Cause if you've ever been to the South, they don't really like to be told that their way of life is that horrible. And, um, uh, <laughs> We've ended up talking a lot more about this than I thought I was going to. But so I think he cured me of it. That's what happens on your fourth time to the show. I know, right? We, we drop the pretenses. We That's right. Deep. This is like Lucy and uh, Charlie Brown now. <laughs> the doctor is way in. Uh, but I, I think he cured me of misogyny by, by being such a misogynist. So I've gone through my whole life like not hating women and trying to understand them. And then my wife's put so much on me about it that – and, and hipped me that now I, I feel like it's my crusade to, to go out and try to 
um, I don't know, enlighten people or, I don't know, alleviate some of the misogyny. There's people who walk around and think there is no such thing as misogyny, and that absolutely flummoxes me beyond all measure. They mm-hmm. don't see the world that way. They think yelling at women from cars or staring at women's chests when you're talking to them is like perfectly acceptable behavior and that girls are broken down into hot and dogs and bitches and, and then when they get old and fucking old and they're ugly and it's like, you're no oil painting. <laughs> You are no fucking oil painting. And guys, what I love is that guys don't try to be a bargain at all. They don't try to be anything better than they are. And they still expect women to have sex with them and be in relationships with them and give them money and all the things they expect women to do. And it's like... Well, in your book, you mention... (laughs) You mention... Shouldn't you hip it up a little? Think of all the restaurants and bars that... um, you know, have their women servers dress in hot outfits. Now think of how many bars do that with men. And you're right that I don't even think, except for a place like Hooters or something, I don't think that it even occurred to me. And it's like that kind of subtle institutionalized stuff that we all see every day. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was at a place in Denver a couple of years ago, and this is when it really hit me because Jen Kirkman asked me to write a thing for her site, the M-A-A-M or whatever, men against whatever. I can't know. I don't know what the acronym is, but it was basically feminist men. And it occurred to me that I was doing this radio show at the t- Tilted Kilt or whatever the fuck it was. It's a pub, <laughs> you know, with, with, you know, sports, that kind mm-hmm. of crap. And it was a sports show. And all the girls were smoking hot. And they all had <laughs> uh, uh, the little tight, you know, Catholic school thing, mm-hmm. uh, like the Britney Spears, the pulled up top and Catholic school skirts. And of course, nothing drives men more insane than schoolgirl outfits, right? Like myself included. It's just a natural. Like men just like. I remember a girl told me years ago, I was doing a video in the Bay Area, and we were talking about Halloween costumes. And I said I hated them because I have glasses. So you're Dracula, but you're myopic Dracula. You know, like you're never that satisfying of a character. You can't be a ghost because someone will hit you in the head and crush. And she said one year I wore. She said I was cocktailing at a bar and I wore my Catholic school uniform. And she goes, I never got so many tips. Like guys were like, come over here. I need another drink. And like $5, $10. They just want to look at girls in school girl skirts. It's pervy, but it's true. Um, and I thought at this bar, like, um, when do you go to a sports bar and dudes are wearing like nut hugging shorts <laughs> And, mid, you know, if you're a gay guy, maybe there's some. Even gay bars don't really do it. And if you're a woman and you're going to, like, Magic Mike's or whatever, some one of those nights where it's the Chunk Chippendales or whatever, uh, or the Thunder from Down Under, then there's an expectation that men are going to be ripped and be sexual objects. Right. And that women can fucking howl and scream and treat them like shit, like men treat women all the fucking time. Um, and then I think I mentioned in the book, too, don't use old lady as a pejorative. It really drives me crazy. And I've made fun of, a lot of fun of Anthony Bourdain on my podcast, and I should probably leave Maloney. For all I know, he likes me. But um, Anthony Bourdain is someone who casually says, and I don't think he knows he's saying it. He'll go like, well, you know, old grandma's in the kitchen or whatever. And it's like, your grandmother deserves respect, dude. And they're the ones who do everything in the world. They raise everybody. They cook all the food. They clean up all the shit. They don't get paid. They get raped on the way to the toilet. So I would back off on the old lady being some sort of weak ass. Mm -hmm. Because you hear it again and again and again and again in literature and art, everything. Movies, it's always, well, I was acting like some old lady. Like, really? Um, I know some old ladies that are pretty fucking hardcore. Um, Hillary Clinton is an old lady. And she's bad to the fucking bone. Uh, so I would, I, I'm always cautious about that. 
And of course, I take out white guys all the time, and white guys hate it. They're huffy about it. Mm-hmm. They're always like, well, I don't know, what am I doing? Like, um, you're being a fat, bloated, gun toting dickwad, is what you're doing. <laughs> do, do a lot of white guys feel persecuted? Because it does seem that they do. They want to. They want the oppression that they perceive women and blacks and gays being given. They, they're desperate to have a piece of that oppression pie. In their world, they perceive, oh, queers are getting everything now, and women are getting everything, and God, I have to listen to women tell me what to do, and I didn't like My dick is so small. And, and I think they, that's why you hear it on TV all the time. Uh, what did Bill O'Reilly say two weeks ago when Hillary declared? He said... Um, if you're a Christian and you're a man, you better look out. Fox News has right? been, like, has been saying, but but that message has been around for so long, no. you know? No. When's it going to happen, what they're afraid of? Um, it, Never. It, it, first of all, they miss the boat. And their declining viewership and their aging you know, demographic is evidence of that. Secondly, the fact that all the women on that show are uh, on Fox News tend to be Great-looking chicks with great legs. Like, yeah. that's a prerequisite. Even you're, Okay, you're right Well, you wing. and I both have done Red Eye a bunch. Course, and they refer it. to... The, yeah, I do too. Yeah. So now, I'm, I don't think... It, what I'm about to say is public knowledge. Yeah. There's that one chair on set they refer to the as the chair. leg chair. Yeah. yeah. Now, when you did it, did you have to wear a short skirt and show your legs? No, I didn't, but they rarely put me in that chair. No, they didn't put you in that. Now, I did it with Amy Schumer four or five years ago, and they put her in that chair. And she wore a regular clothes, put on a miniskirt... And after the show is over, put on her jeans and went to do a set. Yeah. I think the times that I, the times that I was in that chair, I did wear a, a dress or something. But in general, I think because I often wouldn't, especially when I went on at the beginning, they would not put me in that chair. Right. There, when would you ever make a man take his shirt off on television? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Because that's the equivalent. And would you want to see anyone on Fox News with their shirt off? No. Having said that, of course, I adore Greg Gutfeld and Andy Levy, and I'm going to be doing both their shows in New York. And uh, But, but there, that's the other thing. And also people say to me, well, can you go on a conservative show? And, and I'm like, you're a liberal. I'm like, um, because they're nice and they're funny and they let me say whatever I want. And they I don't do Eye. that on liberal shows. So, haha. Yeah. So, wait, you say you're going to do both their shows. Which Greg well, show Greg are you doing? Well, Greg broke off and he's going to do his own he has show. His own weekend and, show. Now, yeah. Right? I don't know what it's called yet. And I don't think he knows. We're also both from the peninsula. He's from San Mateo and I'm from mm. San Carlos. So, we have that. And, uh, and Andy's been, I think, been guest hosting uh, Red Eye with uh, the woman who. She's a, I can't remember her name. She's a dark haired woman and she won a beauty, you know, like she's Joanne Nosachinsky. I think that's it. Yeah, yeah. Nosachinsky. I've met her before because the last time I did the show, I did it with her Mm -hmm. and she's very nice. Um, I mean, you know, I met Lou Dobbs doing, I'm sure the people you meet doing it. Crazy, yeah. Uh, Dania Perino, right? Uh Versus press secretary. And, you know, like these are people that I would take out, right? If I was doing (laughs) comedy, there you are sitting next to them. So now you have to be nice. And, of course, I would be anyway. I try to be unfailingly polite. And Dana Perino goes, I fucking love Whose Line Is It Anyway. And I go, my buddy Chip is on Nashville on ABC, which he is. He, he plays a country star. On it. And she's like, Chip Austin, I fucking love Chip. You know, like, he, <laughs> she goes, and this is the part that made me laugh so hard. I was a country DJ in college, and I thought, oh, Dana, if you'd only stayed with that, <laughs> then you wouldn't have said, what's the Bay of Pigs on television in front of the world mm-hmm. when you were press secretary for the leader of the free world? And they brought up the Bay of Pigs, and you went, I don't know what it is. And it's like, if you'd studied a little more. Uh, but she was dead nice, and I took my picture with her, and, uh, you know, uh, and Lou Dobbs was hilarious. We're doing this segment on the banks, and uh, Andy Levy, who, as you know, is not a straight-up Republican. Right. He's a little no, he's more interesting. Yeah, he, which I don't know what libertarians are. People who don't want to pay taxes. 
And he, but he went, um, the banking industry is writing its own laws and like made this huge point about how corrupt it is. And Lou Dobbs fantastically went, the banks are fine. <laughs> and I just fucking fell on the floor. What do you say? It's a comedy show. Yeah. Because they had Lou Dobbs deconstructing a Miley Cyrus video. And it, <laughs> I have to say it was one of the funniest goddamn things I've ever seen. She's up there rubbing her nipples and she's pouring chocolate sauce on herself. And Lou's like... Well, she appears to be enjoying herself now. You know, it's just like watching. And I mean, they do, They know how funny it is to yeah. have Lou Dobbs do this. Like, he's the last person on earth. And I was writing the book at the time. And Greg, of course, is, writes a book like every six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but he's a journalist. So I, he cranks them out, you know. Right. And of course, I said to Greg, how the fuck do you write all these books? And he's like, you just got to fucking do it. And then I go to Lou. Lou, you've written a bunch of books. And he goes, well, you You've got to concentrate and sit down. And uh, so I was getting like writing tips from Lou Dobbs, right? And I, I was pretty excited about that. It was, just, I love being in the other world. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I never feel uncomfortable. They're friendly. You know who was you surprised, know the, the, like shockingly friendly uh, when I met her, Ann Coulter? Right. Have you done anything with her? I have not. I have made fun of her. Uh, and I was on the radio with her once in different, she was, we were both on the same show, but in different places. And she said, it doesn't take much to get me drunk. And I said, really? Thimble full of drambuie? Because <laughs> she's so stick thin. Oh, yeah, she is. Look, they're all in show business at the yes. end of the day. Whatever ideology and all the semantics and all the puffery and bloviating, they're in show business. And they're making a TV show. And they want it to be fucking funny. Or well, the Red Eye does. Yeah, Red Eye. Red Eye does. What the other I shows always, want it to be vitriolic. And what I always loved about Red Eye, <laughs> and, and especially Greg, is that first of all, if he walks into a room and there's tension in there, he will make a joke yeah. and deflate it. He wants everyone to feel comfortable. And he will go for the joke before the political point. Actually, I don't know anymore if that's how it is. But I think of him as someone who will go for the joke before the political point. Yeah, Unless he's on the Five or one of those ones where he's trying to make a big right. Allison Rosen. She says, "Sweet, I want a sprinkler on a grapefruit." That's the kind of <laughs> intros you get on the show. Yeah. If he was a liquid, I'd drink him in quartz. That's the. <laughs> those are the kind of intros you get. They're always these insanely suggestively baroque, horrible, you know, ejaculatory. Everything is that. Uh, yeah. Which always made me laugh. What I used to love, and they don't do it anymore. I don't think because they had the New York Times. Did you ever do that? Pinch. Pinch. Yeah. And the, the puppet and Bill, who's not there anymore, right. sadly. I love I Bill Schultz. Would had a string, and the New York Times would talk. It was a, it was a crappy copy of a New York Times that they had pasted two eyes on, <laughs> and and glued something in the middle so it had a mouth, right? And it would just go. And Bill would do the voice, and he'd go, "Well, I think." <laughs> <laughs> the the president needs. Like, I love that the New York Times. It was talk like it was a crazy asshole. It was like in the middle of the night. You'd be thinking, I can't believe this is on television, and I really can't believe it's on Fox. Right, and at, I can't believe I'm on it. Sometimes at three in the morning, and then the monkey in a, in a tricycle going around. And yeah, around and around. this part's brought to you by the insane monkey. Thank you, insane monkey. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's like it's abstruse. Right. Uh, the first time I did it, they're like Fox News. You know, well, I mean, I I, I performed for the troops before uh, with Drew Carey, and Drew's you know. Beloved of the troops, and not not that I do it all the time, and I haven't done it in a while, but I have done, and gone to the hospitals and shit. And I don't want any credit for it or anything. But I remember one of my friends went, "You traitor!" And I'm like, "Why am I a traitor? The troops are employees of a vast government machine, mm-hmm. and they are the ones who get to die." 
And so they have every reason to expect us to come over and tell a few fucking jokes. And uh, I, I can be bothered, you know. Uh, I can be bothered to go to the hospital and, and yuck it up with people with no arms and shit because look what they did. Right. Um, do I support the war machine in any way? No. Do I support the dominant paradigm? No. I, uh, I'm revolted by it in every measure. But uh, separating the troops from the, what they have to do, like that's like saying uh, – you know, well, uh, you know, I won't go there. But, it, yeah, so. Well, no, I want to know where you were going to go. Well, I mean, people say you can't be friends with conservatives, but you can. You just can't go into politics every two seconds and make that the end all and be all. I go out for drinks with Andy and Greg after the show, and we drink beer, and we fucking yuck it up and talk about music and, you know, any old thing. Right. We don't sit there and go, Hillary's a boot. You know, like, <laughs> that never comes up. It's just like, you know. And I have other friends who are conservatives, and that's just that. Um, I have some friends who are conservatives who I'd rather have with me at, at the goal line than I would some of my liberal friends who I find to be calculating weasels. <laughs> and, you know, like I did Doug, Getting Doug with High, and someone said something like, well, I thought everybody who got high was cool. And it's like, is that the biggest misnomer in the world? <laughs> that's like saying everybody who drinks alcohol is cool. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Drugs are not the defining line between how cool you are and how uncool you are. There's plenty of people who take drugs that are fucking assholes. Mm -hmm. Um, And by the same token, people being sober doesn't mean they're no fun. You know, although it's not my kind of fun. (laughs) Well, I think I say it in the book. If you're you're sober, get us some ice, darling. You can be the designated driver. Try not to. You open up another bottle, won't you, darling? (laughs) Speaking of darlings... Yes. It's around that time of year where you might want to be sending someone a gift. Mother's Day is coming up. Um, but as I always say, when it comes to Sherry's berries, which are big, delicious, juicy, juicy strawberries dipped in chocolate, don't just send them to your mom. Or don't even send them to your mom. Well, you, yeah, send them to your mom. But also send them to your wife and all your friends and send them to yourself. Mm. It's that time of year to send something wonderful to yourself. Sherry's Berries makes a great gift for you. And for my listeners only, Sherry's Berries is offering giant freshly dipped strawberries starting at $19.99. Over a 40% savings. Go to berries.com. Click on the microphone and type in my code, best friend. Have you had these before, Greg? I sold them last uh, Valentine's Day on my show. Well, so then you know. And they brought them to the show in a box, and I handed them out to everyone in the in the Bar Lubitsch, and people were like, oh my God. They're so good. They're delicious. There's dark chocolate with chocolate chips. Super milk, crunchy, and then chocolate. smooth on the inside. That's right, yeah. with nuts. Nuts, white chocolate with swizzle. The white chocolate is my favorite, but I definitely also enjoy the other ones. Uh, And whenever I talk about them on the show, I always say, if you send them to someone, let me know what they think of them. And then I get flooded with responses from people telling me how much the recipient of them loved them. You just can't go wrong with them. So here's the only way to get this amazing deal. Freshly dipped strawberries starting at $19.99, over 40% savings. This offers for my listeners only when you use my code best friend. So visit berries, B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Click on the microphone in the top right corner and type in best friend. Again, go to berries, B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Click on the microphone and enter my code best friend. So, Greg Proops, in all the times you've been on the show, I don't know that I've ever found out how you got your start in comedy. Well, uh, there was a covered wagon that came through town. There was an old man on it named Jebediah. <laughs> I, I was uh, in San Carlos, California, and uh, um, 
we got up at high school and did all the talent shows and all that jazz, did all the plays. Uh, we would we would do like Abbott Costello routines and junk like that, and then kind of an early Gallagher version where we would smash fruit. I think what we did one year at the uh, and then Who, who's the we? Uh, me and my friend Forrest Brakeman. Uh, he um, was my comedy partner since we were like little kids, and because uh, I knew him in grade school, I just went to the Dodger game with him last night or the Giant game rather, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we won two to one. Anyways, uh, when I say we, I mean San Francisco. I'm from San Francisco, and I maintain my fierce loyalty. Uh, in any case, so uh, we we moved to San- we went to College Cemetery together, and we started doing stand up there uh, at like rallies and you know the assemblies and shit like that. And then we started getting paid like twenty, fifty bucks or whatever, and we we're like, hey, this is all right. Then we moved to San Francisco. Uh, and I joined an improv group, and I did that for a while. And then we started going out and doing stand-up, at, uh, and this is the early 80s. Um, so our contemporaries would be uh, Warren Thomas, uh, Jake Johansson, uh, and then came to San Francisco, Tom Kenny, Dana Gould, uh, uh, Paul Kozlowski, uh, uh, um, Dan Spencer, Bobcat Goldthwait. Uh, the older statesmen, elder statesmen were Paula Poundstone, uh, Kevin Meany, um, Mike Pritchard, Jeremy Kramer, so th- that's the class I come from. Will Durst is a very good friend of mine. Uh, Will's a little old, started before me, Slayton. So that's this pool I came out of. And then um, I was in San Francisco for ages. And so everybody moved there eventually. Tom Rhodes. Uh, uh, um, and everybody came through. Like Doug Benson was an honorary San Francisco comic. David Cross, Janine Garofalo. Um, because they'd all come through the city. And, and, you know, that's where I met Drew Carey backstage at the Improv in San Francisco. And, uh, and I said, do people tell you you look like Vince Lombardi? Because people tell me I look like Buddy Holly all the fucking time. That was like in the 80s. And uh, he was still a stand-up. So that's how I started. And then once I was in an improv group, too, for like a couple of years. And then I went back to doing stand-up on my own. And it took me a long time to find my own legs. I probably started doing stand-up on my own, like 86, 87. Up until then, I'd been in a, in a, well, in the, uh, a team, as we call them mm-hmm. here. What was the name of your team? Fruits and Brakeman. And, uh, <laughs> terrible. And... Uh, uh, then we were, I was in an improv group called Fault Line, and I was in that with Mike McShane, who you know might know from the English Who's Line Is It Anyway. Mm-hmm. Mike was on that for ages and ages, and is on lots of things. And um, so I worked with all these guys over the years. And then I started doing it on my own, and then I've just done it on my own since then. And then I started doing podcasting like four years ago. And that's been the other biggest moment of my life, I think, besides getting on Who's Line. But Who's Line was never a full-time job. I luckily got on in 89. They sent uh, English people over to audition us. I was in, um, uh, in 88, I was in um, uh, Kittens, uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho? No, yeah, Spokane, Washington, with Tom Kenny. And the two of us were driving around in a car doing one-nighters. And we looked almost exactly the same in those days, except he had Woody Woodpecker hair. (laughs) And I had uh, uh, country music hair. And... uh, we got pulled over, I remember, in Montana, and the cop just looked in the car at the two of us, both with horn rim glasses and our little shirts. He's wearing a bowling shirt. I'm wearing a skull shirt. And I've got, like, a boom box and have a radio in the car and, like, weed everywhere. And he's like, get out of here, you know. And that, We're homosexuals from San Francisco, sir. I wonder if you might look askance at our... Uh, so that, that's how it all happened. And I... I I love stand-up comedy. I still do it. I go out all the time and do stand-up comedy. But I love podcasting more than anything I've ever done. Um, yes, I love doing Who's Line, and we're still on the air. We're on CW now. Uh, I don't know what night, but I'm sure we're on. And uh, and uh, Who's Line's been an amazing for me because I've been able to go around the world because of it. But everywhere I've gone around the world, I've done stand-up as well. And I've done my own podcast as well. So I try to keep it 
someone said something nice about me in one of the papers. I think it was maybe a Denver paper. Uh, and this is not to diminish the other people on Whose Line, but they were like, he, he was able to escape the family-friendly net of Whose Line by doing his own thing. And I'm like, thank you for that. Because I, I am family-friendly, of course. Uh, but I'm also toxically opinionated. And <laughs> sometimes Whose Line people come to the thing and they're like, he's not funny. And then I know why they think I'm not funny. It's because I hate guns. <laughs> Yes, I am. I am familiar with what you are talking about. Um, you said podcasting has been a, a huge pivotal thing in your life. Tell me more about the that. most important thing comedically, Allison. The intimacy that we enjoy as podcasters with the people who listen is something I've never experienced. And believe me, whose line fans are devotees they're called hoosers and they know everything about the show and they know how many episodes i've been on which i don't know and i don't care they watch shows and they say to me do you remember this episode where you did that and i'm like i've never watched the show like i've seen a few i'm not i won't lie but i've never sat down and like oh eight (laughs) o'clock time to watch myself like i just can't be bothered one and two i'm high and three i'm working Mm. uh but i appreciate that they appreciate it i understand um and then the podcast fans take it to another le- – and stand-up fans who like you. Um, but stand-up's this weird magic trick that you have to perform in front of people. So you can't be too intimate with them before you perform it. Otherwise, they see through the veneer of the fakery that you're putting on because, you know, I swing a big thing up there. You know, I got a lot of swag and, and, and you – what do we call it? Uh, Chip always called it the, the swagger. When we would get a nice table at a restaurant, we called it the sweet perfume. <laughs> Uh, you know, like, oh, the Who's On guys are here. Come right this way. We like the sweet perfume. <laughs> and we walk into a place and they're like, there's no fucking tables. And we go, the perfume's not working. <laughs> and then uh, when you get on stage, the swagger, right? Because you got to get up there and fucking crush people like whack-a-mole. And uh, with podcasting, it's complete 180. Before the show, I talk to everybody. Uh, after the show, I talk to everybody. I mean, I literally go into the crowd. If you come and see me do a podcast... I will come over and talk to you before the show and probably after as well. Or I'll go to the queue, which is even easier. That, or, or if you're from New York, when you're online. <laughs> uh, when California, when we're Can't online, we're in a computer. When New York, when you're online, you're standing you're in, in, a, in a queue. Yeah. yeah. We, we stand in line in California. Uh, when you're online, uh, and like I play the Bell House in a week's time, I will go, one, everybody's standing outside around the block, and talk to everybody. And that's the best time to do it because they're captive. Mm-hmm. And then it's not fussing with chairs and trying to get through aisles. I can actually physically talk to everybody and take pictures with them. And so you do that before the show. Yeah. They give me gifts. And uh, uh, I, I'm not singular in this. Like uh, I was at Marin's house. Uh, Mark Marin, you may know him. He's a very beautiful young Swedish lady who has his own uh, <laughs> feminine hygiene podcast. And he... Uh, he said sometimes he said to me sometimes he has to mail stuff home that he gets so much stuff and um i I talk about the things i like on stage in my podcast which is books poetry movies dope drink so people give me baseball cards in boston last two weeks ago i got 10 poetry books including sometimes people give me like old fancy copies that they found in a bookstore of like the Rubiad of Omar Khayyam or, you know, just beautiful. It's amazing, yeah. yeah. So, and then bags of weed, uh, 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 bottles of vodka because I drink vodka and uh, it, it, it's, it, 
I didn't get into it for this. I didn't know that was going to happen. I had never, I've been given gifts before. Mm. I'm not a, a complete ball of obsidian, but, <laughs> but, I, I but that level of thoughtfulness. Right, right. Yeah. And, 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 and all the mascots from the show, all the jokes from the show, people have done paintings of them, uh, 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 macrames, drawings, stuffed animals, uh, 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 every manner of, a gif uh, and and I have them all and I keep them around me and and I treasure them like uh and then I go on Dan Harmon's show every once in a while and he play he used to play Dungeons and Dragons and I made up a character called Tylenol with codeine that was a pretty unicorn <laughs> and that why are you Tylenol with codeine and I said because I'm not like the other disappointing Tylenol that doesn't have codeine <laughs> And uh, it was always, you know, harks and alarms by the golden balls of Kathy Lee Gifford. I come to thee, you know, and, <laughs> and speak in this highfalutin Shakespearean. And people send me pictures of uh, Tylenol with codeine. I've, I have someone give me unicorn underwear <laughs> um, because they've listened to that show and they've made the connection. And so it's profound, you know, like uh, I, ta- I know, I'm sure you know, a bunch of your uh, oh yeah, listeners. You know them. Yeah. You know their name. You know where they live. When you see them, you go hi, mm-hmm. and they hug you. And and I know people. It's in, great. It's like a whole community. Yes, I know people in cities all over the world. And because of that, it, that that's the biggest difference to me, um, is that con- the connection. The connection. They're listening so closely. You're like, you feel terrible if you fuck up, or mm-hmm. or you know, like a. I said some stupid thing like women will never be in professional football a couple of weeks ago. And my wife after the show is like, well, that was a rather blanket statement, wasn't it? And, uh, <laughs> because I'm always begging a major league baseball to draft some women so that they don't have to play in a separate Coors league or whatever. And uh, I, I went back and amended it. And so one of the, uh, at the end of the book, I do it, but one of the parts of my podcast is corrections I do corrections, uh, what are we, Estra, Errata and Eric Estrada uh, at, the, <laughs> at the top of every show. People write me and go, you fucked this up or, or this isn't right or why did you say, don't say she male. I called Giselle Bunchen a she male mm-hmm. and I got a lot of heat from a lot of um, trans people and quite right. Mm-hmm. So I backed off on that and said, I'm sorry, I won't use that anymore. And uh, so I learn, I learn <laughs> slowly, but I do. How has that... Um- <laughs> intimacy of podcasting affected your stand-up has it it's made me want to make the stand-up more like the podcast which is to say i always felt like i was an honest stand-up you knew where i was coming from i didn't always uh i never talk about my family the only time i've ever talked about my family really is on this, on this show sh- i was yeah. just gonna i was gonna say it jokingly though but no it's, I, I don't really i've never ever on the stand-up stage mentioned my mother and father unless it was an oblique one-liner like I think I used to do some horrible one-liner where my dad would go, prison is like marriage, but marriage is like prison, but without all the sex or, you know, like (laughs) just a, you know, horrible uh, one-liners and shit like that. But uh, my politics are always evident on stage in my act. And as I think back over the years, they've never been different. And then I found a newspaper clipping from 1984 or 1985 the other day in my garage there was a guy in San Francisco for the Chronicle called the question man. And he would ask people different questions, just corner you on the street. You know, they still do it in the onion, right? Where the people's pictures are there. Mm -hmm. And it says, uh, you know, Terry 22 office worker. What do you think of this and this? And they go, I like it or whatever. So the question man that I found was literally from four 30 something years ago. 
And it said, what do you think's wrong with the world? And it says, Greg Proops, office worker, 23 or whatever, and my little picture. And I'm like, the problem with the world that is run by white guys and corporations. And I'm like, oh, my God, have I never been different? Like, I'm still <laughs> selling the same fucking, you know. And if we topple the dominant paradigm, then everything will change. And when these white guys who fucking run everything. And I thought, no, my politics have been the same since I was a kid. I've never changed them, and I don't think they're going to change. And uh, uh, I can't remember the question now. because The I, question was, wow, I remember it. Um, oh, stand-up. Yeah, well, because you were saying that you always thought of yourself as an honest stand-up. I've gotten more honest. Uh, the, the stand-up, I, I found that I was saying a lot of things that I didn't appreciate in my act, things that I started to review and think, this isn't that well thought out, or this is sexist. Just by the nature of what I'm saying, um, you know, I'll make fun of the Kardashians and I, God knows I had an epic Britney Spears bit and my Jessica Simpson routine, I'll stand by till the end of time. And it's 10 minutes about how stupid she is. But of course, it's Baroque. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I actually suggest that if she was killed by Nick Lachey, that a judge wouldn't convict him. Right. And that I think that's a little unfortunate now in retrospect. But of course, hilariously funny in 2004. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Uh, so now I'm on a real big shtick on stage where I talk about men and women quite a lot. And uh, that's been this year. So I'm doing it in Boston a couple of weeks ago. And the podcast went swimmingly. The people who come know what they're getting. There's very few people who wander into a podcast like, hey, they're having comedy tonight. Although it does happen. In Denver, three women came in and went, so what are we doing? And I'm like, well, I'm going to sit up there. And they're like, so what is it, a show? And I'm like, yes, I'm going to. You know, I don't think they understood it wasn't well, a stand-up I ser- show. Oh, and then they see a desk. I certainly understand that one because when we would do Adam Carolla shows a lot of times, it's billed as Adam Carolla yeah. with a, his headshot. So I right. think they're like, who are these people? What's what? going on? Why is it, you know? But Why do I you think, have a microphone? Yeah, exactly. Oh, boy. That would actually, the first few, there were shows where the first few times I would speak, I would get no reaction. Right. And I realized it's because they they don't get why I'm there or what I'm doing. And yeah. then like the third time they were, you know, on my side at that point, right. but it I had to break them in a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Just the fact that you're what she's going to talk. Yeah. During my show. But I wanted Adam to say, he, uh, yeah, no. And I was, I was on and on about, uh, men and women and how basically how men treat women is the theme. And a guy yelled out in the back, this is on a standup show, like on the Saturday night. What are you a woman? <laughs> like that's he couldn't get fathom that I would talk about this subject at length. I, there's jokes. I'm not just standing up there. It's not a speech. I mean, I'm there's jokes. It's a comedy routine, and that was his reaction to it. Like he's never heard anyone take a woman's side for 25 minutes, and it fucked him up. Like he wanted to say fuck you, but he couldn't, and he didn't know what else to yell. And I could tell that he was wildly upset at the proceedings. Mm-hmm. That the women were fucking digging it and that he was starting to be alienated because I was suggesting that men might amend their behavior a little bit. And what are you, a fucking woman? Like, you know, and like if I said, yeah, kind of I am because I have feelings. Is that what you're after here? That you're a Mookie Patriot fan who's an asshole or whatever? And I, I heard him say it and I didn't deal with it. And it's unusual because I'm, I'm pretty search and destroy with mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I get Western with hecklers. How come you didn't? I don't know. I think I was so browbeaten at that point by how the crowds there were unevolved. The stand-up crowds were completely unevolved. And um, 
I wanted to get through that set without stopping to tussle. It's very difficult to tussle in that room in Boston because it's dark in the back and you can't really see them. And I thought this isn't going to go well if I unevolved like you didn't feel like they were on were getting what you were saying or ish. I mean, I'm not blaming the audience for being stupid. I'm saying. I'm blaming the audience for being stupid. Um, I don't think I work at that high a level that you can't understand my jokes. I'm not that fucking intellectual. I'm not up there reading like a Pythagorean theorem or whatever. <laughs> I'm telling fucking jokes and I tell them one after the next and I go real fast and I put a lot of jokes in my act and uh, they just weren't digging my point of view. Right, no one had, the news had not come to Boston that it is not 1957. And I said to them, so what, you let Negroes play on your teams now and stuff? And they're, boo, fuck you. You know, and I'm like, no, fuck you. How's that grab you? And I went, there's a sign on the wall that said, you know, see me, what is it, Mille Printer, you know, a th- a hundred thousand welcomes in Gaelic, right? Which is you see in every fucking Irish pub in the history of mankind, mm-hmm. right? And there were, in the hotel, a faux Irish pub. And it said that above it. And I went, oh, look, a faux Irish pub. But isn't that the story of Boston being faux Irish? And th- at that point, there's a riot, right? They're, I was they're screaming say, I'm at you me. Out of there alive. And then I do this routine about Ireland because I've been to Ireland more than them. I've been a million times to Ireland and I've been everywhere in Ireland and I know Ireland well. And so I have a long routine about it. And they were furious. <laughs> and ev- I've done the routine in Dublin. I've done the routine in Galway. And they crawl over laughing. They fucking love it. Uh. And so to go to people who are pretend Irish and have them take umbrage at the same routine I've laid on Irish people and had them cheer for. I, re- I didn't say that to them on stage because that's just churlish. But it's like you don't even know what your fucking identity is. You're caught up in this weird web of machismo. Um, You think that sports are real important. You're threatened by anything other. And I just don't buy any of those positions. They don't interest me. (laughs) That was where the disconnect was. (laughs) What are you, a woman? Because I talk about that men yell at women from cars, that makes me a woman? I see. Okay. It's that and it's the other stuff, Greg. My incipient Semitism. Uh... (laughs) The fancy words. Uh, right. Incipient. Yeah. Incipient. Because uh, people go, well, I, mean, I, I can talk about this because I'll never go on the guy's show again. I can't remember his name. He's in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he's a redneck DJ. And they had me do it a couple of years ago, and I didn't enjoy it at all. It was really uncomfortable. I, I get along with everyone, and I try to be as friendly as I can, even in the morning radio situations, and especially then. But he was a real unre- uh, you know, unreconstructed redneck type. And I used a big word. And he went, don't use big words, we're stupid. And I'm like, um, you don't have to be that defiantly proud of being stupid. You know, it's okay. You don't have to push that on me because I get it. And uh, so I'm on, I'm there last year and they, and they go, we want you to do this show. And I went, I'm not doing that show. And they went, we really want you to do this show. And I said, I'm not doing it. And Who's the, the we? Like your people? Uh, the club. Gotcha. In Raleigh. And the publicist fucking emailed me and went like, we really need you to do this. It's a big show for us. And I'm like, I'll tell you what, I'll do it, but I want, you know, you to understand what's going on. And I, you know, told them. So I go in on the morning and the, the nice lady from the club took me as they do. And we get in there and he's got two women and they've got uh, uh, children who are little people. Little people don't like to be called dwarves and mm. midgets. They like to be called little people, right? Like trans don't want to be called fucking she-males by me. They want to be called trans, right. you know. And... uh 
This guy fucking goes off, right? How come I have to call people by that? Why can't I call people what I want? And he spoke like that. Mm. Why can't I call a dwarf a dwarf? Everybody's so fucking sensitive. Then further, when I go to the ATM, how come there's a Spanish button? How come they can't speak English? Like, this is his morning radio show. And I'm telling you, this was five months ago. This isn't 1963. No, this, I, I can imagine. This isn't Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats in, in 1949 <laughs> or whatever. This is a fucking guy on the radio. So finally, I haven't said anything for ages. He turns to me and goes, what do you think? And I say, I think people should be respected no matter what their gender or their size or their race. And he goes, are you saying we couldn't be friends? I said, we could certainly be friends if you never spoke during our friendship. (laughs) And I said, you're as proud of your ignorance as if it was a prize pony that you raised. And he just, you know. And then they go, well, he does a lot of work for charity. I'm like, that's enchanting. (laughs) And we left the studio, and there was a black guy in the studio, too. One of the other comics was there, not on my show, but on another show. And he was sitting through all this shit, right? The why do I have to show respect speech? Right. And he was fucking... The why is everyone so sensitive Boiling, right? He was... I was just disgruntled that I'd had to do this and that I'd begged them not to do it. But the black guy, I thought, was going to fucking lose his shit, right? He'd sit there with his fucking redneck with a camo hat on is going off about how no one's deserving of his... Fucking, you know. Respect. No, I'm a white guy. Why do I have to fucking do anything I don't fucking want? Right, why do I have to So we leave the station and I get apologies from everybody, right? And we heard how it went. And I'm like, now, at this age, when I tell you that this is not going to go well, will you believe me? I didn't say it because I was trying to be difficult. And I'm like, by the way, there's three universities here. It's called the PhD Triangle. Let's do some of the college stations. Then the next show we do is a guy who's a gourmand and he's going on some gourmet weekend. We have the most wonderful conversation about food and art. And I'm like, everyone here is not a pinhead. But if you want to play that NASCAR, and and I don't want them to come to the show because they're not going to like it. Mm -hmm. Then they're going to yell at you a woman. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to only play to the unconverted. And I love the South. I'm not saying the South is evil. I play Raleigh. I I used to play Texas all the time, but there's not a club for me there. Atlanta, Florida. I played all over. And I I love it. The people are polite. They're lovely. They're very intelligent. Uh, The idea that everyone in the South has a pinhead running around with a Confederate flag in the car, that's ridiculous. There's a giant gay scene in Atlanta. You know what I mean? Like, you, you can't make generalizations. But you can generalize that in that part of the country, it is way more accepted uh, gender roles, mm-hmm. uh, sexual roles, race roles. You know, there's rules. It's also at times just talk radio. I mean, I think that that right? for some reason that mindset is really what f- makes for makes for that sort of angry uh angry message that connects with the audience mm-hmm. in a way that liberal radio never will. No, and that's why liberal radio can't sustain. Yeah, it just can't. I mean, you have NPR and you have a bunch of great shows and, and, sure. and tons KPFK of great and all podcasts. Those great, yeah. yeah, but there's just something about the message that we need to get back to the way things were when things were good, yeah. even though that is a fiction. Good of, for whom? Right. What's the total distortion of what it even was, though? That's yeah. the thing. It's I don't even think they're saying things were good for white guys back then. I think that they're they're creating this complete fictional Eden yeah. time. But yeah. like that is like catnip to people who feel 
disenchanted. I, I agree. Guess. I totally agree. I said it to the audience the other night. I said they're they're selling fear, and there was there was no great glorious past. I it I'm old enough to remember wasn't the past. Fifties. No, I remember the past. I I lived there, and uh, no, it was not better. Yeah. So stop saying it. And I say, be careful of anyone who says they want to return to values, because those values mean crushing you. Right. It never means opening up the field to everybody. It means stopping progress. The future's all we have, and I'm real tired of the past. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't mean like acknowledging it. That's the other thing is I really hate the, uh, you know. Well, slavery's over. I don't have to deal with that. I don't have white guilt about anything. I don't have to think about anything that I didn't do. It wasn't my relatives that owned slaves. Well, that, that one lot. made me laugh, though. That was really funny. If your relatives 200 years ago owned slaves, really, you're still mad about that? Like, you have to, <laughs> at some point, go, they own slaves. Right. They lived there, and then they did that. And they're not alone. A lot Are you of talking about did. Ben Affleck? Yeah, that one made yeah. me laugh. But, you know, uh, I remember Bill Burr did a routine once and he was at the improv and it was about white guilt and he came off and I said, Bill, all I've got is white guilt. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was decrying it and I was like, mm, I think you should embrace it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we were talking, so recently on my show, my husband, uh, we were, we just had dinner and he had one drink and then yeah. we got, we were, uh pushed into a sobriety checkpoint he got pulled out of the car he wasn't drunk he was honest that he had one drink though so he got pulled out of the car did all the um the field sobriety test and then breathalyzer and all that and so we were talking about it quite a bit on the show and how he should have handled it and all that and then um a black fan wrote in and said that he couldn't help but think while we were talking about it those are white laws Uh and that the experience is totally different for him um and he was he was really funny about the way he put everything though. And then at the end he said something like, you know, sorry for, uh, preying on your white people, liberal guilt. It's all I have. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's true though. Yeah. There, it, that is white law. And I find that the sobriety checkpoints are complete violation of the fourth amendment. There's no, absolutely no legal way. They are legally allowed to do that. They just do it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Paul Mooney said, I remember, uh, uh, when, when people started getting shook down at the airport, y'all aren't ready to be treated like black people and have to show your ID three times, take your shoes off, pick your pants off, put your thing over there and do that. Do it now. Right. And he's like, you weren't ready for that, were you? Because that's what we're treated like all the fucking time. And I'm like, mm-hmm. No white people aren't ready for right. it. That's why when the riots go on in Baltimore and stuff like that and people come on and go, I don't know why they're rioting. <laughs> and it's like, you don't live under that circumstance Mm-mm. where you can be shot. Right. Because of who you are. Right, right. Because we were talking about, you know, should he have done this? Should he have agreed to this? Should, and, and it's like, if you're not white, you don't really have those options. No. You don't really have the option of skating out of a situation where you didn't agree to something. I'm sure there's people who are going to write and say that's not always the case, but still. Of course there are. I mean, I tweeted yesterday, I retweeted a, a, something from a, from a Black Lives Matter site that said, this isn't a riot, it's a it's a reaction to the what's going on. And someone wrote, you stupid fool, have you ever been to Baltimore? And I was like, then I retweeted something that was on her site that was about let's have peace and understanding. And I thought, <laughs> calm down, calm down. I know what you're saying. When I see a picture and cops are in full Barney armor with giant automatic weapons and there's children everywhere, that does not warm my heart or make me feel safe in any way. Mm-mm. It makes me think we live in a militarized police state that's out of control. Yes. That, that's all it says to me. It does not say, and people go, well, when they came in, they, they destroyed a pharmacy. Like, um, Property is one thing, and people are another thing, and people are being shot constantly. Uh, how many people get killed by the cops every year? 
you know, 500 or so. Yeah. And they're not white people. They're not white middle class people. They're not white rich people. That's my biggest problem is one of my hilarious jokes in my comedy routine is uh, I'm all for the police. The next time Wall Street destroys the economy, I say we let the NYPD go in there and get it going on. So if I see a, a guy in a slick back Harvard asshole in a suit getting his head bammed in, I'm going to be like, let the man do his job. Because no one perceives it that way. I'm sure the Harvard asshole, maybe he didn't do whatever he's getting beaten up for now, but I'm sure he did something at some point. Mm, right, right. You know he's guilty of yeah, something. right. I mean, those white guys are all the same. <laughs> Especially the ones that work at, you know, Shearson Lehman or AIG or whatever. Yeah. No, there's I no mean, d- why do they have that reputation? Think about it. Yeah. No, right. They're thugs. Right. <laughs> oh, uh, th- God, that word drives me yeah, fucking yeah. Thug means black code, person. Right? Yeah. It's just code. Years ago, I was on um, Ferguson. It might have been even when it was Kilborn. And one of my jokes was, I wish I still do, but I've changed it. We're afraid of the wrong people in this country. We're afraid of black teenagers. And, and of course, I geniusly wrote this joke 15 years ago, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I said, uh, I'm more afraid of middle-aged white guys who recently lost their jobs. Because mm-hmm. there was a spate of shootings at that point by middle-aged white guys. And the show called me and said, can you change black to urban? And I said, no, because I don't speak in code. And there is no such designation as urban. And also, you'll find that black people live in almost every environment. They do not all live in a ghetto. <laughs> With a do-rag on their head and a car that goes up and down. I think you'll find there's black people attending college. There's black people who live in rural atmospheres. There's black people who study classical music. Uh, to lump everyone in with urban is the most horrible kind of stereotyping. And they were like, all right, all right, all right, you can do it. So they let me do it. But I was like, you know. And then my wife said that to some one of her friends. And her friend said, and I'm not kidding, is a nice white middle class person who taught at UCLA. I didn't know there was censorship on TV. <laughs> and I always think of uh, Al Pacino in uh, Godfather. Now who's being naive, Kay? <laughs> My father didn't have anyone killed, Michael. Now who's being naive? <laughs> Let's do Just Me or Everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought of. All right, Greg, I know this segment, this segment spawned your great parody song, which we don't have on hand, but it was something about there's pudding in it scares me. There's a chicken on my stoop. (laughs) But remember, we have compassion for these people. We don't just mock their quirks. They are us. These are Alison Rosen people. They are the Allison Rosen people. <laughs> That's right. The ARPs. They might be afraid of pudding and chickens. I don't know. Yeah, sure. There's something scary about pudding and chickens. Uh, Stacey Richardson says, get confused when people use former and latter when describing two things. Always have to stop and think to get their meaning. Mm. I can understand that. It's confusing. Yeah. I, I feel I've pushed you too far in the direction of understanding because I would think that, that this one is never something that bothers you because you're a word person, much like <laughs> well, I Well, I mean, you know, you have to think about what's going on in the sentences. <laughs> uh, it's a simple matter of understanding the definition. <laughs> right, uh, right. Latter is always going to mean later. So if you think of it that way, then maybe that'll help you. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I don't have the problem with former and latter, but I do have a problem with left and right. So uh, try you know? that one. I do, actually. Um, yeah, I, I'm much better about it now, but it's not, my thing with it is that there's no, you can't feel 
left or right. You feel up or down. You're not left-handed, are you? No. Yeah. I didn't notice that you were. I'm not. But, um, oh, why, oh, why? For most people, is there like a feeling of dominance? No, but left-handers right have to live in a, in, a, in a world that they did not make. And yeah. that nothing works for them. Right. And that they're on the wrong side of the car. And that, the, you know, basically everything, scissors, nothing is left-handed. Spiral notebooks. Yeah, spiral notebooks. Writing, you, you, you draw it across your your Yeah, you get words. pen on your hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of them do the thing where you they turn their uh-huh, wrist. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's not me. Jen says, oh, this is a gal chat one. All right. Maybe there's some aspect you can relate to. What am I, a woman? Gal chat. <laughs> Must own 200 hair ties, yet can't find one when I need one. Yeah, yeah. right? But that's a matter of sorting them out in your drawer or getting one of those little things that has the little cubbies in it. Right. Are you an organized person? Ish. Kind of anal, but not that. Mm-hmm. I keep my keys in the same place. Smart. Like every time I always put them in the same place. That way I don't have to fucking look for them. And of course I lose them anyway. But I had a friend in college and we couldn't leave the house. You know what I mean? Like the person you can't leave the house. All right, let's go. You guys are going. We're going. Oh, shit. Where's my keys? And 20 minutes, 30 minutes, every, but like for years. And finally I said, buy a dish. Put it next to the door. When you walk in, drop the keys in the dish. Like he just... It was Couldn't not going to happen. It. Yeah. yeah. It's not going to happen. And that drove me mad. And I was 20 or 21 and I should have been a lot looser mm-hmm. about my time schedule. But I was like, it just drove me mad that you solve that. Right. Solve yeah. That. I guess that's the downside of being disorganized is that it really does eat into your time when you're trying to find something. However, on the other hand, my filing system is like, uh, uh, you know, it's just sheafs of paper and just shit everywhere. And I'm always reminded of A.A. Uh, a. Milne, who wrote the immortal Now We Are Six and Winnie the Pooh, who said the wonderful thing about being disorganized is that one makes so many exciting discoveries. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I Did feel go, like... I didn't remember that was there. And for me, going through the stacks, it's like shifty. It's, it's sorting back in time. Yes. Like, oh, look, something... Wow, that's what was going on four years ago right. when this pile began. Minecraft P.E. Wilkia... I don't get that one. Says, when cutting toenails, I always think I'm going to chop off my whole baby toe by accident. (laughs) I don't have that, but sometimes I'll trim like a mat out of Wendy's hair or something. And I'm always afraid as I'm cutting the scissors. Like I have to double check a number of times that there's not any skin in there. Do you get pedicures? Um, I have gotten them before. But you don't regularly? No, I don't regularly. I'm not a big fan of, uh, of that. Of people sitting at your feet? Yeah, and just the filing, and I don't know. Like, I find when someone goes nuts with an emery board on my yeah. foot or on my fingers, actually, I begin to get a little bit nauseated. Yeah. So, I don't know. I probably should, though. I feel like it's one of those basic female things. A lot of women like them. I've never got one. I've had manicures, but I just generally do my own. <laughs> do you really? What, what kind yeah. of upkeep do you do? I mean, your nails do... Wow. Your nails look very good. <laughs> Thank you. What kind of things do you do? Uh, no, I just trim them and... File them and buff them. I don't, I don't put polish on or nothing. Right, but buffing—that's more than most guys. What are you, a yeah. woman? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge. I'm a fruit bag, <laughs> and all uh, I want is men inside me, one after the next, <laughs> and to listen to Judy Garland. Same. Uh, Lisa <laughs> says it seems weird to me when someone sneezes in church and no one says "bless you." Ah, that's funny. It's been a long. No time. one does say that, do they? Everybody guess- goes quiet. Shouldn't someone yell, bless you? They should. Right. Right in that place. And then you should answer back, right on. 
<laughs> Dustin Smelt says, I love that name. Watch my turn signal start out in tune with the guy in front of me and slowly go out of sync a fraction of a second at a time. A lot of just mere everyone's about the um, synchronization of turn signals and if it's in beat with the music and whatnot. Yes, I, I notice it from time to time, and I never really notice the cars in front of me, whether I'm in tune with them. Yeah. Maybe I should think about that more. Just try to think of other cars for, for a sec, Greg. In this town? It's Ben-Hur in this town. <laughs> Kill or be killed. Death Race 2000. Someone coming over here past me, Beverly. I'm coming mm-hmm. toward you on Beverly from over there uh, to orient our viewers and listeners and, uh, and Allison Rosen people. A dude passed me on the left which means he was in the wrong side of the right. road going 60 miles an hour and shot around me. And then, of course, stopped at the light in front of me, which is what happens in L.A. to everyone who passes you. Right. Then the light started up again, and he had to pass everyone else, and he revved his engine, and it was the saddest little red Fiat you've ever seen. <laughs> Not a sports car, like the ones that look like a Mini Cooper. And that's what this dude was rolling in. So I pulled up next to him, and I considered... Am I going to flip you off or not? Because I generally don't Mm because here I've been chased more than once, right? Like you can't be angry here. You have to calm down. I thought, I'm about to flip you off. And then I pull up and he's got the darkest tinted windows in the world. Not only was he an asshole in a car that he shouldn't have been racing in, he had gangster fucking tint on his windows. And I was like, you're such a loser now. And then he tried to pass everyone else, too. And it was like, wow. You're going to get there six seconds before you would have if you just drove Did like you a leave late? Because if you did, this is your problem. Yeah. You know, and you're making it all of our problem right. now. <laughs> so you've been, you're, are you an aggressive driver? Not at all. I'm a laid back driver. I listen to like uh, jazz or classical music and I don't fucking scream at people. Every once in a while, this town gets the best of me because I hate how people drive here. I think it's the worst thing about this town. The two things I think are the worst are that show business is a hideous, inclusive high school you know, thing that, that's gross and that people are in and out of, which I don't understand at all. And, but you can live with that. Those are the rules. The way people drive here drives me fucking crazy. People pass you on the right. Like, for instance, if you're stopped in L.A., someone might come around you and go in front of you to turn right. Mm. That just might happen. Or the light's fully red and three people come through it anyway because they just want to and endanger everyone's life. And that just happens all the fucking time here. Um, You stop to let a pedestrian go, perhaps even a child, and the people behind you lay on the horn like Faye Dunaway in Chinatown. (laughs) And that I like. And I always think, did you ever cross the street? I mean, never mind your mother, your sister. Did you ever cross the street yourself? Did you want people bearing down on you? Or the one that really kills me, people in a crosswalk here, if they're not all the way across, cars will shoot in front of them, almost hitting them yeah. until the person has to stop in the middle of the street to wait for cars to go by. Which apparently is illegal. Highly illegal. I I, Highly illegal. It's weird that I didn't even know that until very recently. I didn't realize if you're trying to turn right on a red and there's someone in the crosswalk, you have to wait till they go. All the way across. And if you do and they're on the other side of the street, people will get furious at you. And sometimes swing around you to pass. And then they almost hit them. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in the neighborhood of two or 3,000 people are killed in hit and run accidents in LA a year. And people drive away. It happens all the time here. And that's the part of LA I can't. I can't get my mind around it. Yeah. The inhumanity. Because there's no other city you go to where people drive like this. Seriously. Even in New York or whatever. Right. I know. San Francisco. I, I drive everywhere. 
People don't drive the way they do in LA. There are no rules here at all. There is a rally. It's a rally. Like, yeah, I really can't get it. You know, the the way people will pass you on the freeway, the way people will cut you off, the way people will swing across six lanes. And there are there are certain on ramps and off ramps and sections of town where it's like, oh, this is asshole central. Yeah, it's going to be a nightmare here. Yeah. Like around. Um, well, this is uh, interesting to this hyper-local Allison Rosen people. Yeah. Getting onto the 101 on Highland. Yes. it's People are nuts over there. Huh. Yeah. And, w- and we'll cut you off and kill you. Yeah. I mean, like, you're in physical danger a lot of the time in the wheel. And I, my wife drives around, and I'm like, I worry about that more than anything else with her. Not that she's going to be, uh, you know, hurt when I'm gone. That someone's going to hit her. Because <laughs> it's just fucking crazy. Yeah. JP. And the anger, the anger. People are furious. They're, yeah, they just tr- honk like go. They like. I can hear them screaming. People drive past you, gesticulating and like King Kong at you, right. like shaking their fists at you. Like, where are you going? My joke was, you better be headed for the Center for Disease Control with a cure for the Luke and a cooler <laughs> in your back seat if you're going to pass me the speed of Haley's fucking comet going up Crescent Heights on the right. <laughs> yeah, I think. Uh, <laughs> And the funny thing is I wonder if these are people who are doing <clears> – <throat> excuse me. Right into the mic. I did that. If these are people who are doing Cough. yoga and who are yeah. like trying to seek serenity, uh-huh. but, but they're losing their fucking mind on you in traffic. Oh, it's, that's the weirdest part of LA to me. It's really weird because everything else here is reasonably – people are generally friendly and people aren't assholes in restaurants and the service is pretty good in LA. No one dawdles. There's no dawdling. And the lie about LA that always everyone always says is that it's laid back. If you're in show business, it's not laid back at no, all. You've got to work, 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 and all day, every day. That's what show business is. It's not in any way. People don't get up at ten in the morning and swan out for a coffee. That's San Francisco when I lived there. Mm-hmm. It's not San Francisco now because San Francisco's IT headquarters. But when I lived there in the eighties, you got up, you did a bong hit, you went down to the coffee shop. I've never seen that happen in LA. People, what, Michael Caine, years ago, when he was uh, up for an Oscar, I remember he went to the Grill on the Alley, right, which is a famous restaurant in Beverly Hills that movers and shakers eat at. We don't eat there, but movers and shakers eat there. And the seating is by how many Oscars you have, right? So the people with one Oscar are over here. The people with multiple Oscars are... sweet perfume. Right? That's the sweet perfume. Like, we're talking about if you walk in and you've got... And you're a producer and you've got five or six Oscars, they, oh, welcome, and they put you over here. And I remember he went in and he had, like, a salad and a steak and then he went around and said hi to everybody because that's what he was doing and then he fucked off and this was under an hour. And now, no human being in any other country or any other city would be able to eat lunch and say hi to everyone in under an hour. But L.A. works that way. Mm. If you're in Italy, this is three hours, right? Or Spain, you're, you're drinking wine, you're talking, people are coming by, maybe we have dessert, maybe we have a cigarette, whatever. Fucking in this town? No. And oh, by the way, don't order alcohol at lunch. Socializing. If, yeah, if you're out with business people and you order drinks at lunch, you're a fucking drunk addict. You know, like there's no, you can't. Yeah. You cannot let your guard down here ever. And, and, yeah, I'm talking about hardcore show business. If you're in with your agents or other show business people or TV people or whatever, they won't have it. They won't fucking have it. You can't go, I got really high before I came here because they will lose their shit. Like there's <laughs> nothing, you know, even though show business is this drugged up fucking group of people who sleep with underage people and somehow they still 
or moral about if you have a glass of wine at lunch, you're fucking out of control, you know? And what if you eat bread in front of them? You know what I mean? What yeah. if you're slightly overweight and you eat bread in front of them? They're definitely fucking looking at you like, you know <laughs> you, what I mean? You, you feel like your agents are doing that? Not agents so much, but uh, if you're with producer types or right. people who are producing shows, you fucking, yes, you do feel it here. Yeah. And if you're a size 10 girl and you go into the costume shop and the women put the, or whomever puts the clothes on you, they're going to go, well, you're a big girl, <laughs> right? A 10, which in America, most people are like, what, a, a 16, a, a 20, yeah. you know, I mean, go out into America and look how fat everyone is. And so there's that pressure here all the time to, you know, again, one of my managers said to me years ago, I had gained a bunch of weight and it's true. I was fatter and I didn't look that hot. And I was doing some show and he called me and he goes, Hey, I saw you on TV today and I thought he was about to go. You did a really good job. Cause I was really funny mm-hmm. on the show I was on. And he went, you might want to lose some weight. You want to look your best. And I had, I had dinner with Drew that night and we had the same manager at the same time. And I said, when a repulsive cocksucker like that tells you that you need to pull your shit together. And I thought Drew was going to have a heart attack. He fucking fell over his couch. <laughs> I was laughing so hard. Because it's like, you know. And they allow two people to be fat, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what's your name on Mike and Molly? Melissa McCarthy. Yeah, Melissa McCarthy and uh, the Australian girl. Uh, fun time. What's her name? Rebel Wilson. Yeah, Rebel. Is she Australian? Isn't she Australian? I thought she was. I think so. Maybe. They allow two people to be fat. John yeah. Goodman gets to be fat. And that's it. And the rest of us know. You're not allowed to be fat. I mean, I'm not saying I feel like any body pressure. I'm not Portia de Rossi. I'm not turning down (laughs) cake or whatever. But (laughs) uh, there's all these weird, you know, and my age now, my age. I mean, 15 years ago, I was hot fucking shit. Mm -hmm. You know, like I could get a gig. And now it's like, oh, he's so old. And, you know, da, 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 da. And I don't hear people say it, but you don't have to hear people say it. Right. So that's why we do our own thing. Well. When I find out I have there's a meeting set up for me, I think it's funny. We talked about the insanity of general meetings last time, but when general there's a meetings. when there's a meeting set up, see that everything you said, that's why a thousand insecurities shoot through me mm-hmm. the second a meeting is set up because it's just all these like I don't know on what various levels I'm going to be judged, but I'm nervous about all of them. Yeah. You're too Jewish, you're not Jewish enough, you're pretty, you're not pretty enough, you're thin, you're not thin enough, you're what if you say something that's not funny? What if you say something out of school by right. accident? What if you express your opinion? Right. And it was the truth and you meant it. And they read that. And they well, you don't think that. <laughs> that won't fit in here. I know. I know. And I don't know how much of those fears are founded. Like, I don't know how much they really are looking at all those. I don't. Yeah, I don't know how many boxes they're trying. See, that's the thing. It's the not knowing that makes right. me crazy. You, you don't know. And then yeah. sometimes you go in and it goes really swimmingly and everyone's friendly and you're like, oh, that was okay. It was less, way less worse than I thought it was going to be. Right. And other times you go in and you're like, God, I really hated everyone in that room. I think they hated me too. <laughs> My problem is people don't think I'm sincere when I talk to them because I'm usually sarcastic. Mm-hmm. And so if I say that's really lovely or I really like that, people go, well, you don't have to be an asshole about it. And I'm like, I'm not. I'm right. actually paying you a compliment or whatever. And uh, and also, I have a very dangerous road of uh, people think I'm trying to be smarter than them all the time. And I know that I come off this way, and but I'm not. Mm-hmm. You know me well enough. I know. I, I, but other people are... 
people are insecure about their intelligence, some of them in this town, and they don't want to be shown up in any fucking way. And if you come in and you're a little more than they are, or they perceive that even more importantly, then that's the end of that. Right. So you really, like you say that, you said you were surprised that I have a massive insecurity, but I live here too. And like, I have all those insecurities. And then you realize, of course, when you go to another city that they don't matter at all, Mm -hmm. that they're only operating in a two mile diameter (laughs) as you pilot through LA. That's the only place where these rules fucking matter or no one cares. And I just don't, I just don't think all these insecurities help anyone to be a better person or help you with the things that ultimately actually matter. And it's so easy to, I mean, that's what I'm saying about feeling like I sort of connected more with myself from reading your book because you can become so, um, so sort of obsessed with all the little day-to-day insecurities and day-to-day battles of show business right. that it seems so, all, so important, but it's not. No, not really. I don't know what is, though. I mean, I do. Being in love, enjoying your life, those are good things. But I lay in bed like, why did I do that 20 years ago? Why did I turn down that game show? And you're like, this is some fruitful fucking exercise. Right. This is going to solve a lot of shit. <laughs> you can't not be the age you are and you can't not look the way you don't look unless you fucking go on a, you know, a fast. Right. <laughs> Julia. No, no. I went ahead. JPT says, just me or everyone did not know that feathers actually do come out of down pillows. Thought I had a tiny bird hiding in my bed. <laughs> That's so cute. No, I did. I did know that. But it does seem like maybe there's too many feathers coming out of your pillow. They do get out, don't they? They do. They do. I had a feather on me last night. Julia says, I feel like I could be great friends with my eyebrow waxer. We remember stuff about each other's lives at each appointment. And she's so nice. This one doesn't have hashtag gal chat on it, but I feel like it should. True story. I no longer wax my eyebrows. Many years ago, I used to do that. Uh, I found it to be super expensive, surprisingly painful, and then I realized I could just do it myself. And then people nowadays like to tell me that I overpluck and to just let them grow in, girl. And to <laughs> do you have big, thick ones? No. Do you have Brooke Shield eyebrows? I don't. I don't. To them, I say. They won't grow in. This is just what I'm dealing with. I realize there's a hollow over here on the left one. I don't know if it's because I overplucked years ago. Thank you for your concern. <laughs> Ryan Penelia says, still don't know how to properly put a trash bag in a trash can. Just me or everyone. Um, I think I have that one covered. Yeah, I was going to say just you on that one. Yeah. I mean, there's probably a couple other people, but it's mostly just you. I would shrink it down in the middle and then definitely take the outside part and raise it over the lip yes. all the way around. That's yes. how you do it. There's nothing more depressing. Probably a few things. But I don't like when I throw something in the trash and it sucks the bag into the can. And then the next person throws something in and it's a piece of fruit and it goes right to the bottom of the can. Uh, and now, right. Or coffee grounds. And is there anything more disgusting than liquid in the bottom of your trash can? Uh, no. Trash liquid. No. And finally, Lisa says, if a guy uses a coupon on the first date, it will be the last. When married, I won't go to a restaurant unless I have one. I have never been on a date with a guy who's used a coupon. I don't think I would enjoy that. Oh, my goodness. No. No, that's out of bounds. You can't use a coupon. No. You can't use a coupon. There's a lot of things you can't do on a first date. Right. And wear good shoes. Please wear good shoes, gentlemen. Yeah. Don't wear tennis shoes on the date unless you're playing tennis. (laughs) 
<laughs> in which case it looks great. That would be a good first date, a tennis date. A I've tennis never date. Had a tennis no, date. me neither, but that'd be sexy. Yeah. That would be sexy. You want to go play tennis? I know. And then afterward, we'll go get club sandwiches and iced tea. I really <laughs> wish I'd had a tennis date because that would have been something that I would have been good at because I played, it's right. like the, the one sport that I can right. do. God. Why not? Why can't I go back in time and have a tennis date? You, can, you still can have one with your husband. Yeah, you're right. I'll tell him about that. Um, Maybe he's got a coupon good for... <laughs> for some balls. <laughs> you know another thing that's good to do with your spouse or just with yourself is make a delicious meal. But here's the thing with making a delicious meal, Greg Proops. It's a pain in the butt to have to... Let's see, you find the recipe. You got to go to the store and you have to find all the items, etc. And then you don't know how much to buy. And it's just by the time you get home, you're too tired. And then what do you do with all the extra ingredients? Right. Well, Blue Apron takes all that chaos out of it because they send you a big box with everything you need to make a delicious, healthy meal. All the ingredients are perfectly proportioned, so it's all right there. So you can be like, look at me, I'm just like Rachel Ray, cooking with all my things already in the right proportions. Um, doesn't Right, you don't have to be like Rachel Ray. You could just be like yourself. But you get what I'm saying. And also, they send you uh, a recipe card that has... The whole recipe broken down in simple steps with a big picture for each step. Really? It's idiot proof. I'm not saying you're an idiot. I'm just saying <laughs> whatever your level of cooking is, you can definitely do this. Less than $10 per meal. Uh, plus, you'll learn to cook with specialty ingredients that are normally hard to find. And uh, they work around your schedule and dietary preferences. And Blue Apron's experts source only the best seasonal ingredients for incredible meals like pulled chicken mole quesadillas with shredded cabbage salad and Monterey Jack cheese, pork and tomatilla pozole with hominy, avocado, mm. and relish, enchiladas rojos with nopales y frijoles. Um, this is for the Cinco de Mayo week. It's not all that sounded good. Latino food, yeah. although it is all delicious. And then I know that all sounded really good. Each balanced meal is 500 to 700 calories per serving. And so tasty, you'd never know. Cooking takes half an hour. Shipping is flexible and free. And the menus are always new, so they won't send you the same meal twice. Check out this week's menu and get your first two meals free by going to blueapron.com slash Allison. My treat, really. The first two meals are on me when you go to blueapron.com slash Allison. Greg Proops, it was so much fun having you on my show. Thank you for having me on again, Allison, for the 17th time. Has it ballooned to that many? Well, in my mind. I think it has. Tell everyone where they should go to get your book and to find you. Thank you very much for asking. On uh, Cinco de Mayo, or as we white people know it, May 5th, (laughs) uh, it will be released. And then I think you'll be able to find it in bookstores and stuff. Until then, you can go to gregproops.com or thesmartestbookintheworld.com and uh, there's a little uh, banner there and whatnot, and you can pre-order it, and they'll send it to you. It'll also be out, uh, I don't know when, but soon, I hope, uh, on audiobook, because I recorded it a few weeks ago, so I assume that'll come out soon as well. And uh, that's how you can get it, and I'm also going to be on the road. If you go to gregpriest.com, I'm doing a lot of events. I'll be in New York, Chicago, Philly, Seattle, Portland, LA, San Francisco, San Diego, everywhere. So if you go there, then you can come see me live, and uh, I will talk to you, and I will sign your book for you. Perfect. Um, we have an Amazon banner on my website. You could probably get it on Amazon as well. I'm sure it's on Amazon. Click through the banner on my website, AllisonRosa.com. <laughs> but to get the book or all of your other things you might need, such as I'm trying to think of some things that we've mentioned on this show. Well, do you still carry a Filofax? Of course I do. you do. I bet they have. I, 
I bet they have Filofaxes on yeah, Amazon. Yeah, they, they do. But they have everything. That's the point. Yeah, so they do. the banner on my website, AlisonRosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It helps out the show. Thank you for all your Amazon support. Thank you for your PayPal support. PayPal links on the right side of my website, AlisonRosen.com. We have a ringtone available. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. You need this. We have two special bonus episodes available recorded live at the LA Podcast Festival. The first one with Doug Benson and the aforementioned sitting right in front of me, Greg Proops. I remember that one. That's where you did the Just Me or Everyone chicken pudding song. Oh. That was a really fun, very, very um, altered state show. Yes, it was. Doug and I had been to his room for a while. Yes. I, I had such a good time at that show, though. Um, and so that that's the first bonus episode that's available. And then there's one from the following year at LA Podcast Festival as well with Doug Benson, musician Matt Costa, and the former Thursday Gang. Those are both $1.99 in the Comedy Alpha section of the iTunes store. Follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. Email us, A-R-I-Y-M-B-F-Show at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram at Allison Rosen. Facebook, facebook.com slash the Allison Rosen. And um, I think that's all my things. Jeff, where should we go for you? You can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Colonel Jeff Fox. You're not going to plug your podcast? Oh, yeah, my podcast. The Allison Rosen Approved Barracuda Radio. That's right. Found- I definitely approve of it, and I think everyone should go listen to it. Thank you. Uh, found where finer podcasts are found. Thank you so much, everyone and listeners. Thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know and Rosen Show We had a good time But now we gotta go Yeah, Alison Rosen Is your new best friend